Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We, of course, a podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Glad to have you guys along again today. I'm your co-host, Brent Henson. And today we're going to welcome in a man who is not only a retired law enforcement officer, but also a distinguished trainer and author. We'll bring him in momentarily. But first, allow me to bring in our host, a guy who rocks the flat cap like a boss, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? Buddy, I'm doing good today. How are you? Uh, well, uh, here in the great state of Tennessee, it is icy and cold. Thereby, it's a snow day for everyone. My wife is off. My son is off, but I'm working. And I think if COVID has taught us anything is that there's no use for a snow day anymore. You can remote learn. You can remote work. So why these people are off, I have no idea. You know, it's uh, my cousin keeps sending me this meme that says, hey, hey, Mike, your weather is in my backyard and it's drunk. Will you please come get it? Because he lives down south. And, and uh, you folks down in the south, not, not big fans of the cold weather. And certainly if you add any type of moisture in a frozen form to it, it kind of throws things into a tizzy for you, doesn't it? Yeah, once the ice starts coming down, people freak out and Walmart is cleared of all milk and eggs and the schools shut down at six o'clock in the evening. So, yeah, yeah, if all the eggs are gone, then somebody spent their entire life savings because those things are ridiculously expensive right now. And I'm telling you, if you go to Walmart right now, everything's gone because people freak out when weather comes through this way. Hey, well, you know what? Uh, I guess if we're going to do something on a cold day, it should be what we're about to do. Uh, we're going to talk to a guy. Uh, today that uh, is a mentor, is somebody that when I, I need the right answer, <laughs> I can go to. Uh, so what can you tell us about our guests so we can get this thing going? Well, our guest today is a 39-year veteran of law enforcement, retiring in 2021. In 2019, he was inducted into the National Law Enforcement Hall of Fame as Trainer of the Year. And in 2018, he was honored by the Ohio Attorney General as Distinguished Law Enforcement Trainer. He's the author of Use of Force Investigations, a Manual for Law Enforcement. We'll put a link to that in the show notes for you. And he's also served as an expert witness on use of force incidents. Since 2018, he's been the owner and an instructor for KD Training and Consulting. It's our pleasure to welcome Mr. Kevin Davis to the podcast. Glad to have you along, sir. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And coming from Ohio, I can commiserate with the cold and uh, wintry weather. <laughs> but, you know, we, we lucked out so far this year, so we can't complain. Hey, you know, Kevin, I don't know about you, but when we have these mild winters up until this point right here, I start to get really worried about what March and April are going to look like because I don't mind the cold weather. But once we get to those months, I don't want it to be hot, but I don't want any more snow. Well, you know, you're going to see those 30 or 40 foot snow drifts in the parking lots <laughs> in April. So you know, get ready for it. The, those things never go away. They're like the giant iceberg, you know, sitting out there in the parking lots. But, hey, you know, I really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, I enjoy any time I get a chance to talk with you, but I'm excited about our talk today. So I, I guess we'll just start off with when did you start in law enforcement? Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my family's uh, uh, job or, or, or really the line of work is teaching. Uh, my late father uh, was, uh, was a teacher and coach, athletic coach. Uh, my brother uh, retired from uh, teaching, and that's what uh, I studied at university until I did some student teaching. And then I realized that I did not have the patience for that. And I had uh, been working security while I attended college, and I've, I've met a lot of cops. Uh, I was actually offered a, a job in law enforcement before. I think I was 19. Uh, the chief didn't even at this agency, didn't know uh, how old I was, but I went through the uh, Sheriff's Academy. Then it sparked my interest. I went through the Sheriff's Academy in uh, 1982 at age 20, then got commissioned as a deputy that fall. So I worked eight years for uh, the local sheriff's department and then 31 years for uh, police department. So it was strictly, uh, although I've, I've, I've been involved in education my entire career. 
it's a lot different uh, standing in front of a class of elementary <laughs> school kids with with no weapon systems on your belt <laughs> than it is standing in front of a in service or basic academy and police work. So, yeah, uh, dude, I can I can relate to you because I. I I don't get nearly as stressed when I'm up in front of a room uh, full of cops as I do when I volunteer at my kid's school. And, oh. and I don't even have to teach there, but but being around this mass of little human beings. Listen, I've seen kindergarten cop. I know how this ends. <laughs> yes. Not a tomb. Yes. <laughs> that, that movie is actually pretty accurate to uh, how people view it. But, but you know, you, so you've been around this profession for a, a long, long time. Talking with you, one of the things that, that, that has always struck me was how much you love the profession, but, but even more so is how much you love the people that work in this profession and we're going to get into how you show that love now, but there are some fantastic people that do this job. Oh, really and truly. And, uh, you know, I've had the good fortune to work with and work for some truly amazing police officers and sheriff's deputies. And, and, you know, I've, I've been doing it so long or involved in it so long that I still have, lifelong friends that, uh, you know, I met on the job that uh, some of them are closer to me than family uh, are because we've been through so much together. But you're absolutely right. Some really quality individuals. You know, uh, another way that you can tell that you're you're getting older is uh, like when I watch the NFL or I watch the Major League Baseball and you start seeing the kids of people that I liked when when I, you know what I mean? And and so now I'm starting to see that a little bit in law enforcement and and it just shows uh, how long I've been around, but, but also how that, that type of public service is ingrained in some families. And, And I believe that teaching to be a public service as well, one of the most important public services that we have. And it seems like it runs in your family too. Yeah, I would concur with both points. I mean, I had the good fortune to train uh, the uh, sons and daughters of uh, former co-workers of mine that uh, retired and their kids came on a job. And that's always interesting. But uh, in my family, uh, there was it was instilled in us uh, at, a, at a young age, the value of education. My dad, up until the day he retired, was when he almost had his PhD, he'd worked so many hours past or gone to school so many hours past his master's. You know, it was just uh, something that uh, the family always did. And even though my uh, late mother was not an official teacher, the life lessons that she imparted uh, still resound uh, today. I'll just share one of them. And my mom always said when I had questions about somebody, she said, consider the source. And it (laughs) seems like on a daily basis, uh, that quote, I can hear a voice in my ear. But boy, I, I tell you, it's probably more applicable now than ever. Oh, uh, you know, uh, hey, I just heard this on Facebook. Consider the source. Or I just heard this, you know, on Twitter. Consider the source. That, that's some really wise stuff. But when you got into policing, I'm always fascinated by the answers that people give. At some point, you started going down this pathway that I, that I call the use of force pathway. You start getting involved in training and and taking it more seriously. What was it that drew you to the use of force discipline during your career? Wow, some fantastic mentors. You know, first of all, uh, I I went through, I've actually been through two basic uh, academies, uh, Sheriff's Academy in 1982. Then when I was hired by my, by the Akron Police Department, uh, I had to go through another academy in 1990. And even with both of those academies, I was confronted with, you know, there were good instructors. Uh, That's not a blanket statement, obviously, but there were some good instructors. But I came out realizing how much I didn't know. And when it came to your your hard skills, you know, I'm a former football player. And, uh, you know, I hearken back to the time uh, of my high school athletics the hours spent learning basic skills and repetition to, to maintain those skills and the way the skills were built uh, seemed to be missing from law enforcement. So that kind of 
led me to the fact that, hey, first of all, those who teach learn an old uh, ASLAT, American Society of Law Enforcement Trainers quote, you know, and, and so by going to classes, I, re- I realized, even though they might have been instructor classes, I realized how much my skills improved uh, going through it. And, uh, you know, it's just that uh, quest to learn that's, uh, you know, proudly there today, even in retirement. Well, you know what, Brent, uh, he mentioned it here, and, and we've had it mentioned several times uh, during our episodes when, when we ask questions about, hey, why did you do this? What, what, what piqued your interest? That people are always pointing back to a trainer or a mentor or mentors that they had. And, and it's important that, that people understand the impact that they can have on the lives of others. And it's not just in policing. We may not see the fruits of that impact for years or maybe even decades down the road. But what we do as human beings has impact on others. Yeah. And you have to be super aware of that when you're talking to somebody, because you don't know if you're going to negatively impact them or positively impact them. So you have to be aware of those things. Kevin, you said something there that, that I think is incredibly insightful was one of the things you learned was how much you didn't know. And, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people that call themselves experts in, in a variety of fields. And it's, it's an ignorance of what they don't know. And when we have that, that self-realization, it should drive us to find out those things. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. I mean, this job, if anything, especially nowadays, if it's not anything, it's, it's, uh, changing at an ever-increasing rate and that stream you stepped in when you first started your career is not what you're in right now if you're still on the job and especially when we talk about use of force uh you know continually change changes even based on events recently uh, you know that can be an adverse impact as well as positive so you know, you're, you're remiss and, and you're doing yourself and your community and your family a disservice if, if you're not training. Well, you and I, we, we were talking before uh, we started recording and uh, I was asking you, hey, hey, was there a particular case or was there a particular incident that really impacted you that really started this deep dive, for lack of a better term, into the whole use of force uh, investigation, the use of force review type thing. And, and you were talking about uh, a case that you were involved in where there was an officer that was going to be potentially charged with a crime reference to use of force. And you said that had big impact uh, on you. Can you kind of give us an idea of what was going on w- with that particular case? Yeah, it was actually uh, an off-duty case. Uh, one of my guys, he, he was uh, one of my instructors at the time, he, uh, when I say instructors, that I had certified as an instructor, and he was uh, heading into uh, an extra job at a, at a local mall, and he uh, came upon uh, what he thought was a traffic accident at what we call our central interchange, or where major intersections, uh, you know, cross each other in downtown Akron. And it turns out that what happened was a subject under the influence of LSD and over-the-counter sinus medication had intentionally rammed other vehicles and then was running amok on the highway. And uh, my guy uh, got involved, uh, controlled him using uh, you know, techniques that, that I had taught him. The allegation was that uh, he had caused the subject's death based on lateral striations and his carotid arteries. Essentially what he was doing was pressure points, but uh, the allegation was that he had caused the subject's death. At that time, cocaine psychosis was well known, but the phenomenon of excited delirium was was just just coming up. And fortunately, you talk about mentors. I had, my mentors include Bruce Siddle, uh, Daryl Ross, and uh, in this particular area, a now deceased uh, vascular surgeon by the name of uh, Jim Cooper. And I had attended training. Cooper was talking about excited delirium and, and uh, in custody death. And uh, so I, I, I called him when the coroner talked about these lateral striations and the carotids. And he said, Kevin, he said, did you play sports? I said, yes, sir. And he says, well, he goes, I... Uh, 
operated on perfectly healthy 18-year-olds in Vietnam that had these lateral striations in their carotids. He says, chances are if you played uh, football or wrestled or whatever, you might have them as well. He said, that's not what causes death. And so using the research from uh, Daryl Ross and Jim Cooper and getting them in the right hands and making a case that this was an excited delirium uh, or drug-related death uh, prevented uh, this officer from being charged. And that had a big impact because he was very thankful to me and others were, and it was very humbling. But it also showed me the impact that proper training and and research and uh, investigation uh, vindicates an officer in a use of force. And, And that's what's needed today. And that's really set me on my path. And fortunately, I've had several other incidents where you know, I've been able to keep officers who were charged, originally charged with murder, either get them acquitted or, or you know, even other charges, uh, felony charges, you know, pled down to misdemeanor charges. So I've been, I've been very blessed in that regard. Well, I just want to address a couple of things that you, you talked about there, uh, because what what is often lost in, in these types of incidents is, is that these are encounters between human beings. And but both the officer and the person they're dealing with. So in this particular case, you, you you talked about this officer came across what he initially believed to be an accident. Yes. And a lot of people don't understand that when you come in with, with these things and we're human beings, we come into these things with preconceptions because we're human beings. That has an impact on the way that we handle things. But if you're if you're trained properly, you can make that transition from it's just an accident to know this is something a little bit bigger. If we don't train people, there's an issue when they don't transition, isn't there? Yes. And, and, uh, they're, they're caught off guard and, and usually that's because of lack of knowledge or lack of information. I mean, I've been present when a subject has died, you know, from, uh, you know, cocaine induced, uh, essentially what happens, we did a dope raid. He ran, he had just ingested an eight ball of rock crack cocaine and ended up uh, going to the hospital and passing away. And I, I have seen these things happen to other officers where, uh, you know, they respond to this thing, you know, it could be a med run or some type of call, maybe to assist uh, EMS, et cetera. And they're in a fight for their life with somebody that's geeked out on methamphetamine or cocaine. And, and I, that, that incident, uh, and, and I include that section on in custody death in my book because of that, because, you know, these things have changed. Like we talked about before research has improved, uh, and we know more now than we used to, for instance, the, you know, the whole thing of, uh, positional asphyxia or, or positional hypoxia, that uh, was pretty much uh, debunked with research done by uh, some leading medical doctors in, in, a, in the Price case out of San Diego. So the, here, once again, what helps those officers is knowledge, knowing that being able to identify what they're dealing with and make good sound decisions because of that. I'm glad you brought up positional asphyxia. Because when the research was first coming out, that uh, they were saying that the cause of death was putting these people into a prone position, you know, and especially if they've been under the influence of alcohol or drugs. And it was prudent at the time for agencies to implement policies prohibiting that type of activity because that was based upon the research that was there at the time. Where it becomes problematic, though, is when the research is changed and yet we still have those policies in place because it, once it's in place, it's hard to get these things out of agency policy manuals. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely uh, uh, right about that. And in the Floyd case, for instance, we had about 20, 25 years of research on positional asphyxia get thrown out of the window and a focus once again on positional asphyxia as the cause of death or, or a cause of the death of George Floyd. And uh, what we know about that is that it's not, that's not accurate. You know, uh, the sad thing is, is that officers have lost their jobs, uh, been uh, tried and convicted, uh, you know, in 
positional asphyxia cases when you know before that research was completed. And Dr. Uh, Donald Rea, the purporter of the positional asphyxia cause of death, admitted in in the Price case that his research was faulty. And, and the judge acknowledged that, said just like a house of cards, the case falls apart when, when you look at that faulty research. So, you know, there are things out there that, you know, and, and you and I and, and uh, friends of ours are, you know, heavily involved in research-based training, and that's what we have to do. We can't rely on, uh, you know, myths and, and, you know, history and everything else. We have to do the research. Well, and, and uh one of the things that um, that concerns me in our profession is that too often when we go to de- develop our training for this year for our agency, often what we do is rob the lesson plans from last year and we bring them forward into this year. And the only thing that changes them is the date that's, uh, that we have on the documentation and we don't go and confirm that the information is still accurate because it could have been accurate last year. But there may have been something that transpired during the year that rendered it obsolete. And, and I think as a profession, we have to do a better job of addressing that. Well, once again, do the research in terms of what uh, what training actually, uh, you know, ha- has a foundation in science or human performance or the law or w- what have you. And uh, what uh, training is is needed versus training that is politically correct, uh, i.e., the big ones, implicit bias and de-escalation training. You know, uh, implicit bias. I mean, there's enough research on both of those topics to throw uh, doubt uh, the impact of the training on performance in the street and use of force, especially. But you have academics who are pushing this, politicians who are pushing this, when in reality we know what really makes a difference is, uh, you know, confrontation simulation training, putting those officers in situations where they're forced to react to the circumstances and make good sound decisions. And that's in a variety of things. It doesn't have to just be shooting or use of uh, non-deadly force. It can be just making good sound decisions on when to lawfully put hands on somebody. But we don't tend to do that. We, you know, focus instead on the, uh, the political, uh, answer. Well, I, I, and you're dead on, uh, we, we need to focus our training on things, not just on pulling the trigger, but, but also if walking away is the correct thing to do, then maybe we need to have some scenarios that require the officer walk away because I don't have the legal authority to be here or there's not a crime that's taking place. If we don't train those types of decisions, then the only options these officers have are those limited options that we've given them in our training, which tends to be going hands on, pulling a trigger, uh, tasing somebody, using, using a chemical agent. And we don't cover the full spectrum. And we can't expect a full spectrum response if we haven't provided that type training. Well, even if, uh, you know, and this is the answer, the best use of force is the one that never happens or it doesn't have to happen. And that can be a variety of different reasons why that, you know, use of force wasn't necessary. And the big one is that uh, officers had the ability to verbalize and to communicate with the person, you know, and, so much of law enforcement, as you know, is ego invested. And you get a young uh, a person, a young officer, male or female, and man, they're a hard charger, you know, and God bless them. Uh, you know, if not for them, where would we be as, as a society in terms of responding to emergency calls? Uh, but there is a time to sit back and talk to people, you know, and, uh, you know, oftentimes you can dissuade or you're honestly de- de-escalate by just bringing people down and you can't uh, de-escalate a situation by pointing your finger at somebody's chest and saying, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> what well, well, you bring up a great point. Uh, there's another podcast uh, that if you're not listening to this one, you, you, you can be listening to is called the left of Greg podcast. And Greg Williams, who's one of the, the hosts there, he, he says over and over again, we have to remember that oftentimes 
And maybe even most of the times people don't want their way. They want their say. And, and a lot of times these use of forces uh, could be avoided if we simply allowed people to have their say. But we, we take it as a challenge to our authority and we often get involved in things that uh, that maybe could have been avoided. Well, once again, ego is tough, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> and we, we can all have a bad day, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's tough to be on your game every single call, uh, you know, but I mean, that's pretty much what society and the public expects nowadays. And, uh, you know, if done without the risk of officer safety, you know, being compromised, then it's okay. I mean, we can't expect officers, and and nowadays we're seeing more of this because we're, we have these incidents where uh, it result, like you said, in policy changes, policy becomes more restrictive. Uh, the the culture and the agency is a hey, don't, don't put your hands on people, et cetera. So officers are hesitant and trepidatious about uh, about putting hands on. And they, they are compromising their personal safety, be it, uh, you know, using a taser when they should be, uh, you know, ha- have their guns out on a man with a knife, et cetera. We can't come so far in our willingness to reduce violence that we remove lawful use of force to protect the officers' lives or others, you know, we, we that's that's a slippery slope, and I think we're there now. Well, and, and I think that's why the Supreme Court what what was so clear when they said that it must be reasonable, objectively reasonable, because it, any expectation otherwise is an unrealistic expectation on the part of our officers. Yeah, but we have what's unfortunately happening uh, and there are a couple states then where washington state is is one and virginia is another that have passed uh, state laws that are now more restrictive than graham uh and, and they they throw words out there such as reasonable and necessary and uh, uh last resort and uh, you know an officer must de-escalate and all that the problem with those types of standards is they're, they're becoming politically favorable or favored by politicians is that they don't tell the officer what he or she can do. They tell them afterwards what they should not have done and in that they're all uh, 2020 hindsight based and all subjective in nature. And that's what was so brilliant about the Supreme Court and Graham is that they understood that, uh, you know, these situations are oftentimes tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving. I mean, uh, one of my mentors, a mentor again uh, in use of force was John Hall, who was the uh, head of the firearms and tactics unit at, at Quantico for the FBI, and I had the privilege of attending a couple classes of his. And Hall said, you know, uh, that people are, are uh, don't know the, uh, the, the leeway that the law has in terms of police use of force. And when they learn about it, they're kind of shocked. But what's even more amazing is that uh, the, those law enforcement supervisors and executives in this day and age, and I, and I make this claim, you know, oftentimes is that there is nothing more important in law enforcement right now than use of force. And you better have policy that's up to date. You better have training on a regular basic basis. You better be testing to make sure that your people are competent in their knowledge of the law and their skills. Uh, and make sure, by the way, that the supervisors and administrators attend that training as well, because I don't want to have them say, well, I had a, a meeting with the mayor and I, I got to go. You know, that's that's not you can't, uh, you can't have that nowadays because they're the ones that are oftentimes going to be sitting in judgment. And they need to be as knowledgeable as their officers on the front lines. I'll give you a sad, for instance, Virginia changed their law. I think it was 2019, if I'm not mistaken. And they did not require in-service training on the new legal standards. And I had a a shooting, a, a case in which an officer was charged with murder. And the only way he knew of the legal standards was based on his own research, his own agency 
had not trained him in the new standards, and those new standards weren't included in this policy and procedure. Uh, and Brent, I want to point this out uh, to you real quick. Uh, Kevin was was citing some cases before, or, or, or some research projects before we got into the case law there, and and it's important to point out that those were conducted outside of the law enforcement arena by people that were not involved in law enforcement. And I think that one of the things that we need to do as a profession is recognize that the research is often already out there, whether it comes to humor performance, medical conditions, anything like that. We just have to go and find it and find a way to apply it in our profession. And Kevin's one of those guys that has gone out there and done that type of research and brought it in the profession, which makes us more professional. And ideally, it ends up making us safer. And not only us safer, it makes the citizens safer. And it's just a win-win. But we have to be willing to go outside of this law enforcement silo that too many agencies, and and I'm going to go out here and say too many trainers and too many administrators are, are containing themselves within. If it doesn't have police or tactical in front of it, it's of no value to them. And I think that's dangerous for us as a profession and as a society. So, Kevin, I'm going to take you to, to another place here, because obviously that case that you were involved in had big impact on you. And so you really dedicated your life to ensuring that a proper and thorough investigation of use of force uh, is completed uh, by agencies. What did you find when you started looking both internally and externally about those types of investigations? I had, first of all, going back to my training, I had availed myself of advanced training. Uh, I was a big time uh, supporter of the Caliber Press Street Survival Seminars. I think I've been to nine or 10 of them over my career, you know, and I uh, also in that training, of course, I'm a bibliophile, so I love reading and they, there was books they recommended, et cetera. So I would do my advanced reading after the, the course. And then I had seen friends of mine that had gone through shootings. And I remember the guys that were disarmed, uh, put in a, a sus- actually locked in a, a suspect holding room, uh, you know, until such time as they were finally interviewed, you know, uh, and they were up for hours, et cetera. And, um, I saw the adverse impact of that in the investigation. I also saw detectives refer to officers as the uh, uh, suspect in a homicide. And I said to the detective who said that, now he's, he's the victim of an attempted murder, you know, and, and that's, that's a tremendous uh, mental paradigm shift that, uh, you know, that goes on. But, over the course of the years, uh, you know, as I attended more training and, and learned more about human factors and more about the law, uh, and I started to look at these investigations, it was my understanding that the, the investigators that were conducting these, uh, whether it was an officer-involved investigation or just a standard use of force investigation, had little to no concept of, you know, the human factors and the legal standards and, uh, you know, how to do cognitive interviewing and I, just on and on and on. And so uh, I began teaching use of force investigations, uh, uh, you know, based on, uh, you know, th- that deficit. And uh, that was within my own agency that was uh, conducted at the state level and then nationally. And uh, that morphed into uh, saying, well, hey, maybe a book that uh, is a little, would be uh, able to reach a wider audience would, would be the way. And, and uh, you know, anybody that reads thinks that they, they can become an author. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's that, that uh, I don't know, presumptuous thing that readers have. But uh, so I, I basically took the courses and, uh, you know, uh, sat down and I won't tell you that, uh, I was, uh, <laughs> I was restricted to my office at the time from teaching firearms training because I had defended a, de- a deputy sheriff in, in a use of force and got him acquitted. And because the Akron police department rented space at the County range, 
and this was a deputy involved, they banned me from the training facility. So uh, I had plenty of time to sit down and scratch notes, and that, that's what turned into the book. So let's, so let's talk about the book for a second. The book is called Use of Force Investigations, A Manual for Law Enforcement. And um, I, I am a proud owner uh, of the book, and I highly recommend it for law enforcement professionals. And I, and I told you, I told you this when we were talking before that I think it's an important read, not only for those conducting investigations, but also for those that are adjudicating the, the finished investigation. But I also believe that it has tremendous value for the end user, the person who's going to be investigated. It, 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 there, there's nothing wrong with giving people a preview of what a good thorough investigation looks like because then they can prepare for it. And when I say prepare, I'm not saying lie. I'm saying being prepared for something is a good thing. Well, the thing is, is that uh, the, the thank you for all that, by the way, uh, uh, the, the book is still in print. It was uh, reprinted. The original publisher went out of business and I, uh, the rights reverted to me. So I now publish through Amazon and it is available on amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com and wherever fine books are sold. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it also uh, is in use in the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center uh, Use of Force Instructor Program. It's required reading as part of that program. And I'm humbled about that. And, uh, you know, I, I gave a deposition on a civil case a couple weeks ago and uh, the attorney quoted my book. And I thought, well, there I made another sale. So I always... <laughs> I always make a sale to the opposite side on a case that I'm working because they always hold up my book in court. And, uh, you know, the, the, the book, uh, some of the technologies, for instance, when we talk about digital video has progressed so much that, uh, you know, and I, and I have learned so much about body-worn cameras. I, I worked in the BWC unit of my police department my last three years. So I, I was able to attend some advanced training and, and really work with digital video evidence. So that part has, has changed. The technology has improved and changed, but um, the fundamentals are still the same, you know, and uh, those, those legal uh, standards are still the same. And uh, the book still, uh, still sells. And uh, it was a, a manual for law enforcement for a reason. Somebody said that I, uh, I'm a, a um, supporter of law enforcement as if that was a negative thing. And I go, well, of course, I've been a cop my whole career. <laughs> what do you expect? But see, here's the thing, Mike, is that we all know that a professional investigation benefits everyone, not just Absolutely. the officer, but society, you know, but we just want a professional investigation. I'm going to throw this out there, uh, a disclaimer for everybody. Um, Kevin now does consulting work as an expert witness when it when it comes to uh, comes to use of force. And, and it's important to note that he's not out there taking every case, trying to get cops who have violated the law out of trouble. His mission is ensuring that there is due process in, in the investigation of an evaluation of these uses of force, because Kevin and I, I think, are very similar and that if we have people who are doing things illegally, we need to fix it because it has tremendous impact on our profession nationally and even internationally. Would that be would that be accurate there, Kevin? Oh, absolutely true. And, you know, just a case this week that I was approached on. Uh, I'll have, I'm going to have to tell the attorney, no, I'm sorry, you should have your guy plead out because. You know, I, I don't believe that uh, it was a lawful use of force. And, and that's tough. Uh, sometimes uh, that's that decision is easier than others. You know, sometimes the uh, use of excessive force is so obvious that, you know, I, I literally have to get up and walk away from my, my computer because it's so frustrating. Uh, you know, for instance, and in, in you and I talked about Memphis, I don't understand, and I warned about this, and I'm sure you did, and other uh, uh, trainers that are friends of ours and associates of ours have said, 
that uh, in years past that there was always the possibility that everything you did was going to be captured on video. And that was before BWCs were invented. You know, we were saying that. So now we have officers who are not only, you know, being captured by surveillance cameras and pole cams and all this other stuff. We have officers that are literally taking their camera with them and they're creating their own evidence. And yet in light of that, you have this behavior that is is clearly uh, not within the boundaries of the legal standards in law enforcement. You know, so it, it's it's uh, perplexing to me. But like you said, uh, my job as a trainer today, whether it's to work with agencies or to work in the courtroom uh, for my clients, is to, to train juries, judges, lawyers uh, on even the public on use of force. And my, my standard is lofty. It's a legal standard. Uh, so those that violate the law or that soil or tarnish the badge are not somebody that I can work to defend. You know, I have, I, I said in one case one time uh, that uh, I have to look at the man that I'm shaving in the mirror and, uh, you know, that's I refuse to uh, to compromise my integrity and my honor, you know, to defend somebody that uh, that did that to themselves. Well, and I'm glad you brought it up because we would be remiss with everything that's going on in the media right now regarding the the incident in Memphis. Um, I don't even look at that as a use of force. I, I look at that as an assault, and, and th- that that's completely different. Uh, in my mind, as somebody who has studied this stuff for, for decades now, nobody hates bad cops more than good cops. There are going to be some cops out there. There are going to be some good cops that are likely going to pay a price for the actions of those thugs in Memphis. And that's 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 unacceptable. Well, once again, you know, I don't know. The, the The chief of police is saying that there was not even probable cause, that they did not even witness a traffic violation, so no reason to make the stop to begin with. When you consider that possibility, that there was no even, even no lawful objective for those officers to take action, then you realize that no matter how little force they used was uh, was contrary to the law. It was excessive because it wasn't within the law. Uh, you know, uh, now, if there was the, you know, the probable cause to make that traffic stop, you know, possibly the, the, the beginning stages of that encounter may have been reasonable uh, uses of force. But what it led into was was an assault, a felonious assault. And so many uh, criminal suspects work so hard to uh, commit their crimes, and, and we're when we look at them, we go, "My, my God! I mean, what do you what do you think would happen? I mean, look how hard you worked to get convicted on this. How stupid you were! And yet here we have these five officers. Then I suspect that it'll snowball into more, but uh, five primary officers who uh, worked really hard at feloniously assaulting, uh, you know, the subject. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to make excuses for that, you know. And as a profession, we can't. Prof- professionals don't make excuses for, for that type of behavior. It's going back to, to what got you down, going down this roadway was the desire for there to be complete and thorough investigations because that's better for the officer, is better for the agency, and it's better for the community. And that requires us to do a better job of training those who are responsible for doing the investigations. Oh, absolutely true. And uh, the fact I've heard that one of of my big pet peeves is lowering standards, uh, you know, uh, that we're now uh, in law enforcement in such a bad position in recruiting that we're willing to overlook uh, uh, past indicators of character issues or, or low-level felonies or what have you to, to, to get people, my God, you know, this is proof positive. And, and there's some uh, uh, anecdotal evidence that that's what happened here, that these five officers were, were hired under lower standards, and, and, and I'm afraid that this is what you get. If 
we say in law enforcement, this is a, a perplexing thing about it. If we say, even, even our critics say, oh, training, training, training. And yet you're going to lower standards, you know, and reduce training. Uh, this whole defunding is kind of funny. One of our associates at ILEDA made the point, he says, defunding, he said, in my entire career, when have we been properly funded? You know, <laughs> I mean, uh, we never have. And, and yet uh, here we are. And, you know, in Ohio, for instance, they were talking about lowering the PT standards for basic academy cadets. So, my God, you know, look at what, you know, the state of Ohio and its infinite wisdom closed the Ohio Peace Officers Training Academy, academy in the middle of the pandemic, you know. And and they're going, well, that was a wise decision there. And they said, well, it was we had to that we wanted to clean house and all that and improve things. And I said, well, what uh, other avenues or training, uh, 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 you know, resources did you offer in the interim? None, none. You know, so sometimes, uh, you know, in my, in my career, I oftentimes, uh, uh, you know, uh, have goose eggs on my head from banging my cranium against the closest, you know, flat vertical surface and frustration of this stuff. Well, one of my pet peeves is that in most agencies, if there's a fatal accident, there's a specialty team that is called in to investigate it and rightfully so. But in too many agencies, when there's a use of force, the person charged with investigating it is usually the frontline supervisor who in most cases has no better than end user knowledge about use of force. And oftentimes it's bad end user knowledge because they use their rank to get out of the training because they don't want to do the hands-on stuff. A good investigation helps the agency. And let's say the use of force wasn't justified. We're actually doing the investigation harm by giving it to somebody who isn't properly trained and prepared to conduct the investigation. Well, I'll give you two points that my former agency, I made the argument before I retired that they should go to what I call what's commonly called to a fit team force investigation team. Those detectives, senior detectives that have advanced training in, in the subject matter, et cetera. And I really believe that's true, that that should happen. And uh, yet they, they said, uh, I remember the major uh, in charge of DB said something along the lines of uh, every one of my detectives can do one of these investigations. And I'm going, why? Because they've had the training, you know, and, <laughs> and, and it, it was so perplexing. They had a lieutenant who, who's a friend of mine who hasn't, uh, they've sent to all that advanced training. And I said, just bring him in as the case manager of this investigation and then he can mentor younger detectives as the way he does things. He'd been to force science. He'd been to shooting incident reconstruction schools. He had conducted multiple OIS investigations, but they refused to do it. it and it, I didn't understand it. And point number two is that uh, the, the state uh, uh, wanted to bring in a task force for investigators to do OIS investigations or, you know, in custody death investigations and they came to me as a subject matter expert and asked me, well, what training would you recommend? So I sat down, gave it some serious thought, came up with about seven weeks of training, you know, that these guys should have to go to and name the classes and the prices and all this kind of stuff. They refused all of it. What they did was a 40-hour in-house school. 40 hours in-house is all they gave these guys. And, uh, you know, I'm going, wait a second, you're, you, you're talking about, you know, coming to me as an SME about the, the training required and you're you're doing 40 hours in, in-house. Uh, so you see, you know, how that your, your point is made that we can't expect professional outcomes unless we have professional investigations. And quite honestly, one of my things is as an expert is to go in and one of the things I analyze and take a look at is the investigation. And frequently I find glaring holes in, in how the investigation was completed and the involved officer was not given his rights or due process or, or uh, was subject to, I mean, this whole thing now we have digital video evidence that we've come to the place where if it looks bad, it must be illegal. You know, so we're charging people based on, you know, how a video looks. 
not on a professional investigation. Well, there's there's obviously a disconnect between societal community in general and law enforcement. We're not seeing eye to eye in certain things. What do you think that the ultimate resolution or a, a solution to that is to, to have the totality of the circumstances play out, but also have the the other side feel, okay, this has been done properly? Well, that's a tough one. You know, I've taken cases in front of the grand jury, you know, and uh, I've also read the grand jury transcripts on, on uh, uh, you know, cases of officer-involved shooting, uh, shootings where the, the, it was clear, it was clear that the prosecutor was shopping for an indictment. Uh, the totality of the circumstances didn't factor in that investigation. The, the uh, investigators weren't allowed to uh, give testimony about the, the totality of the circumstances. What they did is they came to a preformed conclusion based on politics and geared the grand jury testimony and, and the whole proceedings to secure an indictment. So, you know, I, I told Mike before, and I wrote about it in the book, that, and this was in 2012 when I originally wrote the book, was that we'd come to the time uh, when they would rather charge an officer and make him prove his innocence than vindicate him in a professional investigation. And now we're clearly there. You know, and I can give you multiple cases I've worked on. And one, one uh, prosecutor was kind of laissez-faire about it. He says, yeah, we just thought it was important to put this in front of the public. Well, no. <laughs> no, if the evidence shows that it was a proper use of force, then have the courage to stand up in front of the cameras and say, we have conducted a professional investigation. Here's how we did it. Here is the results. And the officer is uh, was authorized to use deadly force or was within the law. Well, Kevin, I think there has to be an acknowledgement uh, nationally that use of force is always going to look bad. It doesn't matter how justified you are in doing it. You, you are using physical force against another human being. And, and that never looks good. It, should, it, it If it does look good to you, 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 you probably shouldn't be in this business. It's not, does it look good? It's, is it justified? We can't talk about transparency if we're not going to be transparent when our people are right. You know, we're, we're really quick to be transparent when we say, hey, listen, our people that they jacked up here and we're going to hold them accountable. But we need to be equally transparent when, when our people are right and justified in what they did and then give the reasons why it, it has to happen. But unfortunately, that requires a level of expertise that perhaps is lacking in a lot of our agencies. And if you don't know it, it's hard to justify it. Well, I would just throw this out there. There's not a shooting case that the media doesn't contact me on that even in this day and age, they still say, ask the question, couldn't he have shot him in the leg? And we even have the president of the United yes. States that gets in front of the microphone and recently says, well, they don't have to use deadly force all the time. And, and once again, that ignorance of the not only the, the legal standards, but also the practical aspects of the uh, use of deadly force is mystifying. But yet we have, and then when it filters down into the, the department where once again, uh, you know, politicians in uniform make the decision to throw the officer under the bus uh, because something looks bad. You know, well, you, you know, when uh, the SEALs went in and uh, they took out o Osama bin Laden, uh, there, there wasn't a cry. Well, why didn't they shoot him in the leg? And the reason why is because that's not a reasonable response to what they were facing. That the, There was a deadly force threat that they were facing and, and they dealt with it appropriately. And, and is the response that the officer has, is it reasonable? Is it objectively reasonable based upon the perspective of the reasonable officer on the scene at the time? And um, we have become a society of armchair quarterbacking. We do everything. We criticize officials in games, you know, going back and watching a play numerous times. And and that's not the way that life occurs. That's not where the decisions are made. And having that standard right there simply is unreasonable across the board. Yeah, but continuing on in your sports analogy, even in the professional sports where you have 
the official's ability to go off to the sidelines and, and review cameras uh, or plays from multiple different camera angles, oftentimes they can't make a decision, you know? So, I mean, here we are now we're to the point where, you know, we get into the, and I was working on a case just this morning where the, the, the expert for the prosecution in the case is veered off into, not into the world of what's reasonable police behavior, but into the, the theoretical, you know, uh, uh, um, exacting uh, uh, response as if parking a car uh, was, a, was a bad tactic that led to the shooting, you know? I mean, as, and that my take on this is, you know, that as long as the tactics don't clearly violate the law, they're within the range of reasonable behavior. You know, and, and we can always find something in the quiet sanctuary of our offices on Monday morning that the officer could have, would have, should have done. But that's not the question. The force is to be judged at the moment. Absolutely. And then everybody forgets that, you know, and sometimes it's not and doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be reasonable. Or as our buddy John Bostana says, within the range of reasonableness. You know, and that's a wide range. You know, oftentimes, yes. you know, everything from going hands on to the use of deadly force. It's it's not a single point on the spectrum. It's a range on the spectrum. And as the Supreme Court says, it's incapable of precise definition or mechanical application. You know, uh, yeah, I, yes, I do have nightmares about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, well, you know what though? Even though you're retired, you you you're still uh, out there making a difference. And I know that, uh, you're a big supporter of Ailita. Are you going to be at the Ailita conference this year? Yes. I, as a matter of fact, I'm instructing two different, uh, uh, an hour and 45 minute courses called, uh, officer charged about the risks, uh, of being charged with, uh, criminal violations and perfectly good use of force incidents and what officers and agencies can do to to prepare for that possibility. So uh, I'm excited about it. Unfortunately, you know, I, I'm corresponding with some of the officers I've defended and, uh, you know, about uh, the impact of their, their being charged with crimes for murder, to felonious assault, et cetera, the impact on them and their families. And, uh, you know, uh, these are life-changing incidents. So, you know, when you're like, uh, 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 was said earlier in a case, I'm out of Tulsa, you know, uh, where, you know, you have this officer, you think you do everything right. You've been led to believe that your agency is going to take care of you. And the next thing you know, you're charged with a crime and you're facing your, your the possibility of imprisonment. Absolutely. So, so for our listeners who are out there, uh, if you're attending ILETA, uh, I highly recommend uh, going and listening to Kevin uh, speak. He's, He's fantastic. Uh, I'm not going to promise you you're going to feel good when you come out of there. <laughs> you're, you're probably going to have some homework to do uh, once you come out of there. But but look him up. Uh, we, we also, uh, just to throw a plug out there, uh, Between the Lines is also going to be at Ailita. On Tuesday night, we're going to be doing a, a live recording of this particular podcast. Uh, we would invite everybody to come there, uh, Virtual Academy. Our parent company is also uh, going to be there supporting Emerson Hour on Monday night. We highly recommend uh, that you come out. It's a great time. Uh, if you're not going, uh, my question is why not? Because uh, Kevin said it uh, towards the beginning of this episode that teachers learn. And that that is one of the best venues to be able to learn if you're a teacher is the ILETA conference. So please please consider coming out for it. Uh, we'll put, uh, we'll put links to that, uh, in, in our show notes. Uh, but Kevin, as we're wrapping things up here, uh, if somebody unfortunately finds themselves in need, uh, of your services, what is the best place for them to come and find you? Well, uh, probably email is the best way. Uh, I oftentimes can't take phone calls. Uh, I'm wrapped up in something that I can't answer the phone. So they can email me at trainer, that's T-R-A-I-N-E-R, Kevin Davis, uh, trainer Kevin Davis, no hyphens or periods, at gmail.com. Or they could visit my website, which is kd 
forcetraining.com. That's K as in King, D as in David, hyphen forcetraining.com. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm very busy, but, uh, you know, it's, it's the good Lord's, uh, call, uh, you know, it's given me this calling and I really believe that and we're able to help a lot of officers. So if I can help, give me a call or have your attorney, give me a call. And, and we'll make sure that we put that, that information in our show notes as well. And, and uh, Kevin, uh, it is God's calling. And, and I appreciate the fact that guys like you are willing to step up and answer the call. Uh, for our listeners, if you get yourself in that uh, that place, this is a guy you want to talk to. As uh, Brent talked about in his introduction, uh, you could do a lot worse than having a Hall of Famer on your side. Just throwing that out there. But but but, but Kevin, I, I really appreciate you taking time to to spend with us today. And I'm serious. I appreciate the work you're doing. It, it, it is meaningful and it is impactful. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and. To those uh, uh, members that are listening, I'll just say this. Uh, uh, may the good Lord bless you with the strength and will to train to win. Roger that. Brent, uh, it's always an honor and a privilege for me to be able to interact with true legends of the profession. And, and that's what we got today. I appreciate Kevin's candor in talking about this because it's a, com a complex topic of discussion, one that sure we could carry on for another hour or two and probably more and one i hope that we delve into more in the future because uh i learn things by listening to him speak and i'm sure uh there are different areas that we could get into it's it's a hot topic as they say and 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 the media and just society at large and it's always good to hear different perspectives and points of view so we can form an opinion and be uh, you know more learned about the situation absolutely uh, if you'd like to find out more about Kevin, we'll have all that information right there on our episode page on our website. You can also send us an email. You can listen to past episodes and get uh, links to podcast providers. You'll find it all on our website, Between the Lines with virtualacademy.com. And don't forget to subscribe to get those brand new episodes as they're released each and every Tuesday morning. <laughs>